everyone. This is Creekside Chats with David and Ryan. Uh, we are very excited to be bringing this week's episode to you. We have a very, very dear friend and special guest, IMB missionary Chris, with us. Um, just a reminder, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Google. Probably if you can think of it, it's probably on there. So search for it, subscribe to it, give it a listen, share with your friends. If you listen to it, let us know. We always like hearing some feedback on it. Um, but for this week's introduction of Chris, I think I'd like David to talk about his, I know you have a pretty deep and dear friendship with this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our guest today is Chris uh, and really good friend of mine, love his family. Uh, Chris, I'll let him speak about his family in just a few seconds, but I'll never forget the very first day that Chris came to our church and we just so happened to be preaching about mission and being good neighbors and I remember just seeing Chris hang around after service and wanting, you could tell that he wanted five minutes, 10 minutes just mm-hmm. to, just to talk. And, uh, we sat down at Starbucks the next week and I had pen and paper. I was ready to tell him about all that we do. And I left with about four pages worth of notes about (laughs) leadership development, about how we needed to change this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But just so much, uh, so much of what we do now started from conversations that Chris Mm -hmm. and I have had over the last year. So Mm -hmm. been a great relationship. And uh, Chris, let's just start off, man. Tell us a little bit about Mm. your family. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Ryan, David. Appreciate the introduction. Uh, uh, my name's Chris, and um, my wife, we've been married for over 20 years. My wife, Nikki, and I, we have four kids. Um, uh, we have uh, uh, two kids that are uh, now adults. Uh, one is pursuing a firefighting career. One is uh, pursuing a psychology degree, and uh, a boy and a girl there. And then we also have uh, a, a girl that's 13, Ellie, and uh, she's. And then we've got a, an adopted son, Jacob, from China. Whom and, everybody uh, knows and loves. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Jacob a, could meet. If you walk into a room and Jacob's there, you know it. That's right. That's <laughs> that right. kid has more charisma yeah, and just yeah. always the happiest kid. I think he might have been, besides you guys, the first person we met at Creekside. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Came. That's right. He's never met a stranger, that's for sure. So. But uh, yeah, Matthew and Olivia are uh, really doing well in their adult life and just kind of growing and developing. And we're excited about uh, about their growth, but also sad now to be potentially leaving them and, and uh, heading back to the mission field. So. Yeah, and for those of you that don't know their oldest son, Matthew, uh, Matthew at one point or another, I'm not sure if he still has it, mm. but he was uh, kind of like the pool boy mm. and <laughs> also is trying his best to become a fireman. So yeah. on a calendar <laughs> near you, right. Matthew right. the Pool Matthew Boy, the pool. <laughs> June's edition. He's covering right. all the calendars. And then July, he's the fireman. Love it. Yeah, we've joked around that uh, he needs to go by the name Enrique. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he plays a little guitar and sings right. a little bit. That's, right. That's incredible. Yeah. He's the guy that can do it all. <laughs> Chris, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to shoot straight forward with you. Mm. Uh, in our time together, you're probably one of the smartest, wisest guys I know. 
Wise guy. I don't know if that's a good... (laughs) I need some help trying to understand something, okay? And it's a little bit of poetry, if you will. So I'd say it's poetry. Yeah, help me out understanding. Maybe explain it. Classic. I would put it in the realm of classic poetry. Classic poetry. Uh, Coolio, in his song Gangster Paradise, (laughs) says this. Fool, I'm the kind of G that little homies want to be like. On my knees in the night, saying prayers in the streetlight, keep spending most of our lives living in the gangster's paradise. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, man, that's a tough one. I don't, you don't even know. But I do know that that's the kind of... My first thought is, hey, that's a culture I got to get to know <laughs> yeah. so that I can begin to, to introduce the gospel into that world you know i gotta Mm -hmm. understand their language i gotta understand what's bringing that you know those words to to light and so uh, way to completely dodge the question (laughs) (laughs) oh way to dodge the question uh let me start off a little bit tell us how did you get into this world of international missions and Mm. for those of our listeners who don't understand what that means kind of explain what Mm. international missions are Mm. uh of course you're with uh the international mission board Mm -hmm. what is that Mm -hmm. and uh just tell us a little bit about how you got started well first of all i mean international missions is is looking at uh who god is and uh, recognizing that, you know, he is deserving of all glory and he has made us in his image to, to essentially reflect his image, to glorify him. To, mm-hmm. and, uh, and at the same time, men and their uh, man has, has, uh, is broken because of our sin. And so in a sense, that, uh, that image has been marred. Um, and so, but as a result of that, also our relationship with God was broken. And, um, and so we live in a, a broken world as a result of that. But um, in Genesis 12, God talks about that through the seed of Abraham, that uh, he will bless um, uh, his, him and his family through, so that all nations, all mm. peoples will come to, uh, to worship him. And so really international missions is about saying if God deserves all glory and he has, he has called us to be the agents by which that glory comes back to him and, and is made known uh, through the person, uh, the life and, and the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have a responsibility. And our responsibility is to obey the commands of God, uh, that to, to go and make disciples of all nations. There's always the qualifier that he puts there, there that to make disciples of all nations. And so that affects everything that we do. So mission is essentially designed, uh, defined by God. And, and, and since there are peoples and places all around the world that do not know the name of Jesus, that will uh, basically 41% of the world right now is essentially in the state where they will be born, they will live an entire life, and they will die never having heard the name oh. of Jesus. And so uh, International Missions is saying we have the responsibility because we do have the gospel. We, do, we have received that grace uh, to take that to uh, cross cultures, cross, cross uh, languages, barriers, everything to take that gospel to them. Um, the way that um, I got involved with that was really just basically, um, I was a businessman, uh, and, uh, 
really kind of did project management and, and, and really kind of traveled a lot, some around the world, but, um, but for the most part, hadn't really um, been discipled. I had called myself a Christian, and, but at some point, I really began to just examine the Word and say, you know, if, this is, if, if I really believe this, then I need to follow it, and didn't really know what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so I just began uh, walking uh, with a group of guys, through the word together, praying together and, and saying, how can we obey? And, and then each week we would challenge one another to say, how are we going to step outside of our comfort zone together, hold one another accountable, do that so that we can grow more and more into the image of Christ. And in that process, he just began to transform and change me into his image, into his likeness. And in that process, it just began, I began to see the, the, the nations consistently throughout the scriptures, how God was bringing his glory to all the nations and he was using men and women uh, to, as the agent uh, to bring the gospel to all those places. And uh, as I began to see that, I just, I'm kind of a black and white guy. And if God says this is what we're supposed to do, then, uh, then, then let's, let's go see if we can, uh, ha- how we can get on board with that. So it's, um, it's making me think of a conversation last night. So you mm. were over here last night with our missional community. Right. And I'm, you were talking about there was a point when it just sort of clicked in your brain where um, the job you were working to pay the bills mm. became your part-time job. Like mm. sharing the gospel, that was your full-time. Right. So it, it's interesting hearing you say this this process. Mm-hmm. Like it's a process where all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, sharing the gospel. That's, that's what I'm here to, to do first. That's right. That's and then right. all this other stuff is mm-hmm. secondary to that. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a real transformational time. It was, I had just read a book uh, called uh, um, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And Hudson Taylor's a famous, one of the most famous missionaries out there. And, and he had basically, on his preparation to go to the mission field, uh, one of the things that he, he, he sort of says in that book is that crossing an ocean doesn't make you super spiritual. Mm. What you are here is what you'll be there. And so he, he felt like, well, I need to be a missionary and do the things that a missionary would do right here and there. And he also realized that going overseas, he wouldn't have the same means to, to accomplish everything that he has in, in, uh, by himself. And so he began to just pray and depend upon God for everything. Mm. And in that process, he was trying to be a missionary wherever he was. And that's yeah. ultimately what we realized, that that's ultimately our job, is to glorify God in all that we do. And, and, and the main way in which we do that is to make disciples. Um, and so that's what we tried to, to do. And so by switching that to our job is no longer, I mean, our job as we see it, our secular work, is no longer our full-time job. That's just what, that's the means by which we make disciples. Yeah. That's the means by which uh, people can see Christ in us and exemplified. And uh, so that was an important switch for us. Can you uh, tell us where you started out? What, yeah. What countries? <clears throat> yeah, in 2006, we uh, uh, we had lived overseas in Australia for a couple of years in 2001. And so we had a little bit of cross-cultural experience. And then my job took me overseas a lot. Um, but, uh, I went originally on 2003 on an international mission, mission trip to China. And that just, 
uh, in fact, right there, as I went on that trip, I began to see lostness in just mass numbers and to see people that had literally had never heard the name of Jesus, had no basis for it at all. Very spiritual people, you know, whether it was worshiping ancestors, fear of all kinds of, uh, you know, spirits and things like that. They were ne- definitely just like everybody else. They're, they're, they were religious and, and spiritual and things, but they had never had any foundational hmm. uh, teaching or even even any understanding of who God really was. Um, and so in 2006, we actually um, went over as a family. At that time, there were three, uh, we had three kids and went as a family and moved to China, moved to southern China and immediately began basically what we were as a church planner. So we were there to enter the country um, uh, in, by different means uh, and, then, and then begin to share the gospel with the idea that those who came to faith, we would begin to disciple and hopefully form into churches that would then begin to multiply. That's a long plane ride with three young kids. <laughs> it is, it is, yeah. Many plane rides and, and quite, quite a distance, yeah. Any maybe funny stories you remember about some culture shock whenever you kind of get off the plane and you're there for a little, little bit of time and say, Shoot, we're not in Kansas. Sure, anymore. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, I mean, there's it's so many stories that that come to mind, but uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, typically you're already ready to to hit the ground. You're ready for change, and so it's actually initially you don't actually uh, initially hit that culture shock as you think you might. About two weeks in, all of a sudden, now it becomes real. It's not just a mission trip, you know. This is life. And that really, in some sense, you start to see that uh, hitting uh, for the first six months, really, at different times, at different stages, with different people. Uh, but uh, just so many different stories from trying to learn language. And, and uh, I, I remember different, different people. Uh, I remember one friend of mine uh, preaching a whole sermon one time on uh, that Jesus died on the small intestine you know, and, and not realizing until the end of the sermon, everybody was squirming out there and not realizing that, that he was using the wrong terminology instead of Jesus dying on the cross and the small intestine. But, uh, um, so many, so many different uh, blunders, I guess yeah. that would happen. And it's just, you just got to roll with the punches, I guess, along the mm. way. So. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. Make sure to uh make sure I have the right words. And your your daughter, speaking of languages, mm. your younger daughter, mm. how many languages is it that she speaks now? Well, she uh she learned Chinese, she learned a little bit of Zhuang, some Nepali as well, and, and uh but she, she became fluent in, in Mandarin very very quickly. Mm. Uh obviously she was a young child. Young children learn much faster. And she entered the, I mean, she was in a local school for four or five years yeah. uh, as a young child. So she oftentimes, that was one of the most humbling things is when she was actually our translator, you know, as a three-year-old or four-year-old oftentimes that mm. in the beginning stages, she would become our translator. So I used to joke with the the locals that, you know, that I, we charged, uh, you know, $5 an hour for me to translate and, and $50 an hour for her because she was so much better. So, but, um. That's awesome. So we've talked a little bit about what it's like from my experience, church planning mm. in small town 
Goose Creek. Sure. You step on the field in a place like China or you move to a place like Nepal where there's literally by the millions people who have no access, like you said, mm. to Jesus Christ. There's no church down the street. Mm. There's no KFC down the street. Mm. It's just a totally different world. So you 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 wake up Monday morning. How do you get after it, man? Take us a mm. little bit behind the scenes. Tell me what's your strategy. How in the world do you affect uh, such a massive population like that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly when you begin to look out and you see the numbers and you see just massive uh, numbers of people in lostness, and then you, you're suddenly realizing that I, I'm speaking like, um, you know, after three, six months, I'm still speaking like a kindergartner, you know, and so that begins to really uh, just drive you to your knees in prayer and recognizing as you're trying to share the gospel and you're realizing that that I'm just, I sound so horrible when I try to say that, or I, or I try to share that God loves them, but that's all I can get out. Or, or, or maybe a little bit later that I can, am sharing, you know, that, uh, he died on the cross, but I can't share any more than that because I just it can't get out. So that begins to really drive you to, to prayer. And, um, but just a, as a, a day in the life, it, it, it varies so much, but really, um, a day in the life is getting up, uh, and, and spending time in, in your quiet time and really beginning to look out and say, how are we going to even begin to accomplish this? And just surrendering, surrendering to him, uh, beginning to surrender to him once again, surrendering to him his, his word and his promises. And then, uh, and then beginning to realize, okay, now we've got to engage these people. We cannot, we're never going to see anything major happen if they're not engaged with the gospel. So Typically, um, you're, you're going to spend uh, some time in language study, and uh, whether you're in language school or whether e- even once you get out of language school, it's a lifelong process. So you're going to be spending an hour, maybe if you're already past language, you know, studying, you've passed your language. You're you're going to spend an hour in, in in language study. Otherwise, you're maybe going to spend the next seven hours in language study if you're if in the beginning. But let's say we're three or four years in, you know. And, and we've learned the language. Now I'm going to spend some time in, in language study because today I'm going to have to go out and pay the light bill or pay the electric bill. And mm-hmm. it's going to take me forever. And, uh, and I've got to learn the language to do that. <laughs> you know, so it's always a struggle to do that. Um, but what's interesting is that in the beginning, we began to see that we had no time to do anything because it, it, life just takes so long to do. And we begin to realize that that's those instances are exactly where God was providing us the opportunities to share the gospel, to build relationships, uh, to begin to connect with people. And once we begin to see that and we begin to, that just transformed our whole ministry. And we begin to realize that everything that we're doing in life is an opportunity to be a witness, to engage with people. And so our, our life every day is going to be things, taking our kids to school, things like you would do. Um, you know, going admit for many of us, it was having to, to work some kind of a job or some kind of a business in order to have a visa to live there. So oftentimes we were doing that, but so much of it was, you know, having dinner with people, having lunch with people going out. Some of it included, you know, going and knocking on doors and stuff like that. But, but in many cases, it was really just about living life and finding ways to engage people with the gospel. But you know, one of the things that people, at least in my day, people used to 
think about missionaries as they were like a doctor or just this pastor that went out. I'll tell you that when I begin to actually meet missionaries, I begin to see, wow, anybody could be basically a missionary. Uh, is uh, you know because when I began to meet missionaries and see that these were just average ordinary everyday people that got on fire for Jesus and said he said make disciples of all nations okay let me go see you know how we can do that so soccer if you're a soccer player you'd see him go and they would teach soccer and play soccer with people if they were businessmen they would go do business there if they were a musician they would go and and have some sort of platform to do to, to do music or whatever it is, the, the number of people that are actually pastors is pretty minimal. It's just average, ordinary people just so using their skills and their talents uh, in everyday life to go and open the gospel to. They're just yeah. going and That's right. living, That's living right. their life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The um, Could you share a little bit maybe about maybe some of the similarities, or but really a lot of the, maybe some of the differences in, communities there so like mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about sure. oikos or sure. your 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 group network of people of your network and, of influence yep. mm-hmm. um, not the yogurt that's kind sure, of the standard sure. ongoing yeah. joke about sure. it your, your oikos but what would you say is different about the community the communities of people maybe the culture mm-hmm. within those communities of people in the places you've been compared to the culture of the communities mm-hmm. here in america yeah, it's definitely, uh, that's one of the things that we struggle back with coming back here because the Western world in many cases, including Europe and, and, and a few other places, have become fairly um, isolated. Hmm. Uh, we, we come in, we, we leave work, we come home, and we go into our house, and unless we got yard work or something, we really don't engage with people until the next day when we get in our car and drive to work. and. And uh, you might say hello to the neighbor, but there's a barrier between you, so it doesn't really go that big old privacy fence. Yeah, yeah. And so, oftentimes, and obviously, different places of the world differ, but for the most part, we find that uh, around the world that um, that that most cultures are very communal still, Um, much like we would have been hundred years ago or so. But uh, here in the states, but very communal. Uh, they do things together. Um, that yeah, hospitality is still a major aspect of their culture. So even as you try to to go and engage with people, they're they're going to be a lot more hospitable and willing to receive you into their homes, willing to serve you, serve you with food, serve you uh, with drinks, things like that. And uh, and then a lot of the things that um, because they are so communal, it they they use those networks. Uh, to to really uh, for business for uh, for needs that they have it's it's not as much financial as it is relational um, and their their currency oftentimes is relational and so sometimes the gospel is able to flow a little bit easier uh, through those lines although I don't I think those still exist here I think that we just uh, we just don't realize. Um, and it maybe takes takes a little bit to get over, but I think we still have our oikos, yeah. uh, our networks of relationships and influence, and uh, we just we just have to be able to overcome those uh, barriers. That's a great question, and I think that leads me into a question that I've wanted to ask you for probably a long time. Don't know that I ever have. Mm. Um, uh, I remember reading several years ago a book called uh, "When Helping Hurts." Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that 
sometimes the way that we help and the way that we serve can mm-hmm. often enable or make the problem worse. Mm. Um, maybe tell us a little bit as humbly as you can. Mm. And I, I, we're not trying to step on any church toes or anything mm-hmm. like that out there, but uh, there is certainly this sense that sometimes American churches can walk into a system, can walk into a place and actually make it worse and not mm-hmm. help. Um so I guess maybe a very specific question is what does the American church get wrong about international missions? Hmm. Well, my, I know what book you're talking about. I haven't read it, but I have read excerpts from it. And, and so for whatever reason, the, the phrase kind of, you can give a man a fish and he eats for a day, but, or, you know, teach a man a fish and he eats for life. That, that kind of thing sort of, comes to play in there and uh what we see anywhere is that um you begin to give handouts and immediately um you know people think all right where's the where's the next one um and certainly we want to be cognizant and uh, about the fact that um many people in this world in fact you know all over the world even in the united states are hurting (laughs) very much hurting. So when helping hurts is not a book to say, Hey, we don't need to help hurting people. You know, it, it's really about how do we help them best, you know, so that they can come out of that and, and be renewed and, and redeemed. Uh, and, and, uh, um, so one of the things that, uh, I guess your, your initial question was how, how are we potentially, uh, hurting things at times? I would say from an international mission standpoint, one of the things that we can get wrong at times is that um, we can begin to think that uh, international missions is a two-week project. Um, we see that constantly, even even just in the States, to, to, to state that I'm a missionary, everybody wants to say, oh, yeah, I have, my grandmother's a missionary too, or my... Uh, dad's a missionary too and, and basically what they're talking about is that they go on a two-week trip once a year well we think that's great that's wonderful and uh but one of the things that we miss out on that is recognizing the sacrifice and um the time and and investment that's required to reach peoples when we're talking about basically 17,000 according to the Joshua project 17,000 people groups in this world, about 7,000 of them are unreached people groups. That would mean there's less than 2% are Christian. Ultimately, basically, that most of their people will be born, live an entire life, and die and never have, have heard the gospel. Out of that, about half of those are unengaged, unreached people groups, uh, what we would call a UUPG. A unreached people group is a UPG. Yeah. Um, UUPG are those that are not even engaged. There's no one even trying to reach them. And so there's so much that has to go into going and actually crossing barriers, crossing languages. Um, and, 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 and that takes time and years of investment to do so. Uh, and the same thing applies just on a smaller scale, even to reaching the the local trailer park down the street from us here. It, it may not take years because there's less of a barrier in terms of language and things like that. But there are still 
cultural barriers, all kinds of even even language barriers in in some cases uh, here will take time and investment. And if we want to short circuit that and go in and just do a few things that are going to suddenly cause them to listen to us for a day, that doesn't necessarily mean that we've brought the gospel to them. It just simply means that they've heard us and we've moved on, but we haven't exemplified um, Christ to them. So That's good. That's a great answer. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is that it takes more than two weeks. And so ideally, what is the best way that a church in America can partner with an international mission, family mm. or mission? Mm. That's a good question. Um, one of the things that um, I guess I really want to go back to in in thinking about um, answering that question is how you would even go about reaching a group here and recognizing that uh, God has already laid out the plan for how to do so. I was just listening to Steve Addison on a podcast yesterday talking about his new book, uh, The Rise and Fall of Movements. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that he consistently goes back to is some of the things that we consistently go back to on the field in reaching a people group and uh, in, in, in taking the gospel to, to unreached places is that it's the first, it's a surrender. <laughs> it's a surrender to him. Uh, you know, that means surrendering to whatever he says in his word and uh, not the way that we want to do it. It means abiding in his uh, word and, and really uh, just surrendering to whatever it means, spending time with him, eating his word, that sort of thing. But then secondly, it means being empowered and believing that the Holy Spirit is going to uh, empower you to do that, that you cannot do that without the Holy Spirit. And then following Jesus's plan to reach them, meaning you have to enter into their community, actually share the gospel with them. Then you have to disciple them and teach them uh, how to obey. And then gathering them and planting a church there and then beginning to and developing leaders throughout that whole process will then take that on. And so the reason I say all that, that's the process that, that's the way the world will be reached. That's Jesus's plan. There's plan A. There's no other plan. You know, uh, uh, there's no backup plan. That is the plan. Well, the same thing applies to international missions and how churches can be involved. Surrendering to his word, will, and ways, essentially, and beginning to say, God, how would you have me be involved? How would you have me be involved in beginning to pray for international mm-hmm. missions? you know, through joshuaproject.net or uh, looking on different websites to find, you know, booklets that you can begin to pray for peoples that are that are unreached. And in that process, then beginning to pray for missionaries uh, that are out there on the battlefield and, and uh, uh, taking the gospel to very difficult places, um, willing to take their families into, and sacrificing considerably. And so beginning a partnership, a partnership of prayer to, where you're praying together and understanding what's going on and then beginning to, to make trips there. Uh, we, we, we would say short-term trips can be a detriment, but tr- short-term trips are actually very helpful as well. If that's all that, that it ever is is short-term trips, then, then, then we're not interested, you know. But, right. but if, if, if you're wanting to grow and understand how I can be more involved in God's plan, 
uh, to, to reach the nations with those open hearts to say, whatever God you're going to call me to do, I'm going to surrender to that. And then what we want to be able to do then is begin to get you in, you know, those, those different stages of, uh, of entry, uh, evangelism, discipleship, church planning, and leadership development. And there's many ways to do that, uh, you know, from, um, you know, not only praying for missionaries and their kids, but also beginning to come and actually serve uh, missions organizations and serve. Uh, a lot of times we have meetings on the field, and, and so you can come and serve, help the kids or help the adults, that sort of thing, but then also begin to come and, and do evangelism, you know, and, and do, look for persons of peace, that sort of thing. Uh, do trainings of kinds where we might have to translate and that sort of thing, but just beginning to get involved and see what God is doing and, and just open your hand to Him and say, God, whatever you would have. You just use the term a, a person of peace. Maybe... Just what is a person of peace? Mm. Well, we typically look at that from uh, chapter 10. Uh, A person of peace would be somebody that um, when you go to share the gospel in a particular area would be somebody that opens up to you and and really is is receptive to that message. Uh, You would see from Luke chapter 10 that they actually are typically going to receive you in, in ways of hospitality into their home and find ways to serve you, and in so doing, providing the opportunity for you to share the gospel more deeply with them. But typically, a person of peace, we would say, is somebody that ends up receiving uh, the uh, the gospel, uh, believing in the gospel, and then begins to to ultimately see their oikos uh, be reached um, be, because of that. And so, as we talked about last night, one of the things that uh, we would say, and thinking, we often think about looking for the person of peace, uh, and the reason for doing so is is obviously we want you to reach your oikos, your network of relationship. But when we go into areas that we don't have relations in, ships in, we're looking for people that God has already prepared, mm-hmm. who will receive that message and who have those relationships in that particular area. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things I do want to challenge us in to, is to to not just be thinking about um, we're going to look for persons of peace, but that every single Christian should be a person of peace themselves to their network of, of, of influence, those that they work with, live around, mm. all that sort of thing. They should be exhibiting those traits of a person of peace that people look at you and say, I would feel comfortable being in their home. They're inviting me into their home. They're inviting, they're serving me, you know, not because they're going to get anything out of it, but because they simply love me or there's some some transcendent force that's causing them uh, to to, to do that. And we would know that would be Jesus in us and the love of him overflowing to others. And real quick, because we're, almost at the end of our time. There's a very practical need specifically in this area. Mm. Um, I know there, there's been a little bit of struggle that you guys have dealt with in this time of transitioning mm-hmm. and going to where you're going. Um, can you speak to, to that need? I don't, I know it's not in every area, sure, but can you talk about that real practical need? So if someone says, you know, what can I do? Sure. Sure. Um, I wasn't even aware of this until you brought it up, but oh, okay. then when you brought it up, it made so much sense. But I thought, wow, I'm I'm surprised that this area sure. is struggling in that right. way. But can you talk about that a little bit? Well, when missionaries um, 
live overseas, typically they're living in places that have, um, not always, but oftentimes have a lower cost of living. And so when they come back to the States for uh, furlough or for stateside time, <clears throat> they're typically, um, they don't have a lot of money. They don't have, a, their, their pay is very low and uh, they don't have the kind of setup that we have uh, typically when we've lived here for a while and we have all the things in place. Sure. And so um, ways that you can serve missionaries is just by blessing them, taking them out for meals, taking them, uh, hearing their stories, listening to what's going on with them, um, you know, doing those sort of things. But one of the major needs is always vehicles and housing, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and one of the things that's always very difficult when people come back is finding how am I going to pay for a vehicle? And uh, so there, there are some ministries out of Atlanta and different places that provide vehicles for a very low cost. Um, and, and then oftentimes what we've found is where somebody's blessed us with a, a car they're getting ready to sell, and then they'll let us use it until we leave again for the field, things like that. But specifically here in Charleston, I've been very surprised how, if you think about the number of churches here, and yet the number of missionary houses here, those houses that when a missionary comes back can stay in for three months, six months, however long, and it serves as a base for them to right. sort of travel out of as they go and speak in different places. But it also is a place of rest for them. Right. Um, and missionary houses across the United States have been a real blessing to us, but it's also a blessing to the church. And those churches that have found Typically, a lot of times where an older person that um, will put it in their estate or will that uh, that when it when when they pass on that they will pass that on to the church to be used for a missions house, um, then those churches end up having missionaries in their uh, in their church missionary families hold you know year round mm. and begins to infect and impact um, their people. To, to, on the global mission um, as a whole. So that's just one need that I would say right now in Charleston, we just don't see very many missions houses. And so um, as a result of that, oftentimes as much as we'd like to be in Charleston, we're right now actually moving to Greenville, yeah. uh, you know, as we prepare to, to go back to the field simply because cause there were, weren't homes available. Here. Now, if somebody, so say, for example, somebody listens to this mm-hmm. and they say, I have a house, I have a space. Mm-hmm. Maybe they rent out a portion of their house as an Airbnb and they sure. say, sure. I want to, I want to make this available. Right. Right. How can they make it known that mm-hmm. their, that their space is available? Sure. I think actually most of the uh, homes are listed through the WMU. The, okay. Uh, was it Women's uh, Missionary Union but, um, and uh, the, of the Southern Baptist? And so that you're typically listed on there, and then that's how missionaries usually find that. So they would stuff, just get so. in contact with them and mm-hmm. say, I have a space. Can you list it? Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. I had no idea. Mm. That is something I think that we can start working on soon. Mm -hmm. That's, that's very good. I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately we are out of time, but I just want to say thank you to you and your entire family uh, for being with us this last year. Um, There are stories I think that we're going to continue to tell for years. (laughs) And it's amazing whenever we, whenever I sit and think about your network of influence, but not only your network of influence, but your family's network mm-hmm. of influence that have impacted so many lives mm-hmm. 
within a single year is just truly incredible. You are a person of peace. Your family mm. are people of peace. Uh, so just want to say thank you. Thank well, you so much for all that you've done. Yep. Uh, last question. Better movie, The Jerk or Caddyshack? The jerk, by far. Yes. <laughs> he hates these cans. <laughs> well, thanks so much, everybody. We are out of time today. This has been a special uh, interview with one of our IMB missionaries and friends. And uh, we look forward to partnering with you guys for a long, long time. So thank you for today. Well, thank you all. I appreciate yep. it. Thanks, guys. This is David and Ryan with Creekside Chats. Join us every Thursday morning for some talking. <laughs> <laughs>